Hello, and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores controversial, challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, Dr. Al Atkins, a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, and for Dr. Aaron Parks, not joining us for tonight. I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hey, Tosh. Hi. We'd also like to welcome the newest member of our team, future physician, Yasmin Dakama, helping make our show happen. Hello, Yas. Hi, everyone. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, Riverside, or UCR School of Medicine. On today's show, we have with us Dr. Daniel Carlat. Danny is the founder of Carlat Publishing, Associate Clinical Professor at Tufts Psychiatry and Chair of Psychiatry at Melrose Wakefield Hospital. After medical school at UCSF, he trained at Harvard's Mass General Hospital, where he was Chief Resident of Inpatient Psychiatry. His textbook, The Psychiatric Interview, was selected as one of the top recommended psychiatric books for small medical libraries. Dr. Carlat founded Carlat Publishing in 2002 and its flagship publication, The Carlat Psychiatry Report, for which he is editor-in-chief, has become one of the most well-respected newsletters in the field. It is quoted widely in the national media. His blog, The Carlat Psychiatry Blog, is consistently ranked on the top 10 most influential health blogs. Danny also writes for Psychology Today, Psychiatric Times, and general audience publications. His article for the New York Times Magazine called Dr. Drug Rep was selected for Harper Perennial's Best Science Writing 2008 Anthology. Another publication of the Carlat family of publishing is the Carlat Report podcast, which happens to be my personal favorite podcast. We see Carlat Publishing as inspiring for its lacking conflicts of interest, namely not receiving any funding from the pharmaceutical industry, a rarity in Western medical publication. We asked Danny for a, a fun fact, and he mentioned, ironically, that his grandfather, Sam Carlat, was once a pharmaceutical salesman and went on to start his own drug company. Um, with that, I'd love to go to Danny and kind of ask you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are now? Definitely. Uh, and thank you, Alan, and thanks to the whole crew um, for inviting me. This is a great podcast. I've, I've been listening to episodes recently. Oh, and, my gosh, um, no way. <laughs> I've, I've, I really have, have enjoyed um, the conversations that I've heard. They're engaging and, um, and you know, educational and informative. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite honored that you asked me to be part of this. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, what was your question, Alan? So how did you get to where you are today? I know that you started out, or at least as far as this story goes, you started out working on a medication called Effexor. Okay, right. So, right. That really, I mean, I think the story goes back a little further than that. It really goes back to when I was a resident, a uh, psychiatry resident at Mass General, in the early 1990s, uh, you can probably enlighten me how it feels at, at your universities, uh, medical centers, but 
you know, at that time, in the early 90s, especially at Mass General, I'm, I'm not going to gang up on Mass General or Pylon here, but, you know, Mass General was definitely one of the centers for pharmaceutical, pharmaceutically funded research. There was a pretty hefty industry presence. And um, one of the things that I, one of the earlier experiences I had that really struck me was in the APS, which is the acute psychiatry service, which was our like psychiatric emergency room. Uh, we would, you know, be really tired. We'd be, often be up all night. We'd walk into the break room and there would be these Paxil bagels. So we'd have the bagels, we'd have the Dunkin' Donuts coffee, we'd have the cream cheese, and then we'd have all this paraphernalia, the Paxil pens, the Paxil pads, uh, the Paxil logos everywhere. And this friendly drug rep named Walter, um, who, uh, you know, would, was there to, to chat us up about 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 the medication and um and i rem so there was that you know that was just sort of standard you know drug company fare uh and then it, it was also interesting to me because paxil had been out for a little little while back then i don't think you guys the, the younger psychiatrists are using it as much these days but we were already pretty skeptical about paxil because paroxetine uh, because we saw our patients gaining a lot of weight, getting sedated, complaining of lowered libido. And we would point this out to Walter. And he was always prepared to parry these critiques with uh, these kinds of rejoinders. And he would say, well, you know, few, few patients really gain that much weight. And the sedation was actually great for patients with insomnia. And, you know, all SSRIs caused side effects. And so, you know, we would we would listen to these things, and when it was time to leave, he would he would always have this little catchphrase that I still remember. He would say, "Remember, don't forget Paxil for your anxious, depressed patients." Oh so, God, that's I'm so sorry. That, that is so me. nauseating. <laughs> it's just so like marketing, American late capitalist marketing. I, I well, know it has a purpose, and we we develop great drugs because our country funds that. <laughs> That's that's hard. Well, yeah. And then what happened is that we all and I remember this uh, growing up kind of in psychiatry in the 90s, mid 90s, even into 2000, we began to consider Paxil as the go to SSRI for anxious patients. I mean, it did have it does have a lot of FDA uh, approvals for anxiety. But years later, um, thorough studies actually doing head to head studies comparing Paxil with other SSRIs found that there was no evidence that Paxil is any better than the others for anxiety. And in fact, it really does have more side effects. It does cause more weakening, it does cause more sedation, and it probably causes more libido. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I think it was GlaxoSmithKline was the company that marketed it. They did, it was a huge blockbuster for them. Um, so in those few years before these other studies came out, showing that there really weren't all that many advantages, um, they made a lot of money. Which was, you know, uh, that's that's Amer that's American business. So that's that's the way business works. In some ways, there's nothing wrong with it, but um, but that that always kind of stuck with me. So that was one of my earlier experiences. Okay, so fast forward to you become a a physician scientist for uh, the company making venlafaxine or marketing venlafaxine. Yeah, yeah. So that was quite a bit later. So, you know, now, so I graduate from residency. 
Uh, I go into private practice in Newburyport, Massachusetts, uh, and I'm just kind of, you know, do, starting my career like we all do. Uh, and I had, at that point, I had written a book called, I think you mentioned it, The Psychiatric Interview, which is a small textbook uh, that was becoming pretty popular. And so I remember in 2001, so this is now about six years after I graduated residency, I was in my office and um, a pharmaceutical rep from Wyeth, which uh, marketed Effexor, came in and uh, was just being extremely flattering to me about the book. He said that they were actually giving copies of the book to some of, you know, some of the doctors as freebies. And he said, you know, Dr. Carla, you're such a great communicator, et cetera. You know, we'd love you to be a speaker for us. And um, I hadn't really done any work with the, you know, before that with the, the drug industry. And I did flash back on those experiences I had as a resident, but I thought, you know, that this could be could be interesting and, you know, just see, see what happens. So I agreed to do it. And the next thing you know, I and my wife were being flown to Manhattan. Uh, we were put up in the Millennium Hotel. We were given uh, Broadway tickets. We were given, I was given a check check for $1,000. Uh, and and while my wife was sort of larking around New York doing, doing some fun stuff, uh, for a couple of days, I was sitting in a lecture hall with some of the, really the, the greatest minds in that generation, I would say. I mean, these were, really super duper superstar researchers um, who had done some research on uh, Effexor and other medications. And they gave us these slideshows that um, they were PowerPoint slides, basically. And they were hitting all the talking points that we would be later expected to hit on sure. when we were given our own talks. Mm. So, um, I did that, came back up to Newburyport, and then I started to get these calls from drug reps um, with, you know, within Wyeth, and they had a whole team of, of different reps covering different sort of local areas in the greater Boston area, uh, inviting me to give talks. And these were usually, um, usually lunchtime talks. They would be called lunch and learns. Uh, they were paid, I would get paid anywhere from 500, <clears throat> excuse me, 500 to $750. Uh, for um, to give these talks, depending on how much driving I had to do. So basically, I would come. Uh, the drug rep would arrive before me with uh, lunch, platters of food, uh, and then I would I was expected to give a talk about antidepressants. And um, and it was just an interesting experience. Um, I mean, and I think anybody anybody listening who's done any kind of promotional speaking knows the psychological mechanism involved. So, you know, you're, you know that you are getting paid to do something. And so, you know, in some sense that you're being paid to market, but on the other hand, you know, you have your ethics and you want to provide fair information. So when I first started, I remembered I would just create sort of a, a little slide deck in addition to the company provided slides that was sort of very fair. And I would talk about all the different antidepressants and I wouldn't really emphasize effects or any more than, than any others. And you could tell that, that the reps, just the expressions on their face was not very good. They weren't very happy with it. 
Okay. And, um, and then, it, so it's almost like um, Pavlovian conditioning. You know, you, you sort of are trained to, to, um, to talk, to, to emphasize certain things. And I found myself um, talking a little bit more about effects or de-emphasizing some of the side effects of effects. And as I did that, I would get more and more calls from more and more drug reps. And they were just happier and happier to see me and they would smile more and more broadly. And so I, I ended up doing quite a bit of these talks. So and, just to clarify, well, no one ever directed you to do more of that, more promoting. It's just no, kind of meta communicated to you. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't anything explicit or blatant, but it, it also kind of doesn't have to be. I mean, I think we all, mm. anybody who does those talks pretty much knows what they're getting into. Sure. Um, and um, and then I also found out, and as I got to befriend some of the reps, um, I also found out more about how they do their jobs. So they don't leave anything to chance. Uh, they know exactly what the effects are of Dr. Carlett's talk or, or somebody else's talk uh, because they have uh, something called prescri prescription data mining. Uh, at least they did then. I think they do in even more oh, sophisticated. Okay, yeah. I think, I think in even more sophisticated ways they do that still. Uh, but they were able to almost in real time. I mean, they could pull up their laptops and they could see how many prescriptions of each medication any doctor in the world, really, or in, the, in their territory, in the United States and in their territory, uh, how many prescriptions of antidepressants they were prescribing, and they could um, follow it. Uh, after my after my talks, so mm -hmm. oh, wow. they would know that you know Dr. Smith was prescribing you know thirty percent Paxil, twenty percent Prozac, uh, you know twenty percent Zoloft, and only five percent Effexor. And then after my talk, they would see that the percentage of Effexor in that doctor's portfolio would go up to ten percent, wow. or fifteen percent, or twenty percent. That's incredible. And then, and then they would they would. Um, communicate that information to the other drug reps. If you're just joining us, this is Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking to Dr. Danny Carlat of the Carlat Report. All good. Right. So um, so then, then they would, um, you know, as I say, they would communicate that information to other reps. And then you would get invited to give more talks. Right. And, I'm really curious because you bring up the experience in your residency training when you saw how Paxil was being marketed to you as residents and the food that was provided with that and the rep who had their catchphrase. And then later in your career, you begin speaking more about effects or specifically when you reflect back on that, how do you think that evolved? It sounds like you had some skepticism in residency, perhaps, and then later on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about that. No, I mean, so, you know, I, I don't know how many talks I gave. I probably gave between 20 and 30 over the course of 2002. So I was originally approached 2001. Mostly this was in 2002, and I gave a lot. And um, it was just a process of starting to develop these pains of conscience as I found myself becoming more and more of a glorified drug rep and less of an educator. Uh, and I remember one, um, 
one talk in particular, usually I would give talks for primary care doctors who weren't as maybe sophisticated about these medications. They didn't use them as much. Uh, but occasionally I would give talks to um, groups of psychiatrists. And one, one time I was kind of spinning the data on blood pressure. So we all know that effects are, one of the effects main side effects is hypertension in, in a certain number of percentage of patients. And I would kind of, I would give the, the typical company line, which was that there was only a, about a 1% difference between placebo and Effexor. Placebo causes 2%, hypertension, Effexor causes 3%. And one of the doctors who was uh, in the audience looked at me very skeptically and said that basically that wasn't his experience. And when I, and I realized that although the 3% versus 2% figure was true, that was, that was uh, considering the overall dose of Effexor. And if you looked at uh, doses from 200 to 300 milligrams, it was about a 4% uh, risk of hypertension. And if you looked at doses above 30, 300 milligrams, it was about a 9 to 10% risk of hypertension. Mm -hmm. But those were pieces of data that I wasn't um, really sharing typically in my talks. Um, and then, I, I, really, that that for me, that experience with that skeptical psychiatrist, I s can still—it's almost like PTSD. I can still remember the look, look on his face, and and I felt ashamed. Uh, and I remember the next um, talk that I gave, and this is getting toward the end of 2002. Um, I really uh, kind of went back to my original style of not emphasizing effects at all, and I actually was a little bit skeptical. I talked about how the effects or trials showing that it was more effective than SSRIs only lasted about six weeks. And if they had been continued longer, the SSRI response rates or admission rates might have uh, picked up and, and uh, overtaken effects. Or, and um, after the day after I gave that particular talk, that original drug rep that had come in to invite me to be a, a, a speaker came into my office and said, Dr. Carlat, the, the uh, those, uh, the reps at your last talk told me that you didn't seem as enthusiastic about our product as you had been. And I told them, even Dr. Carlat can't hit a home run every time. This is the, the rep talking to me. And then he looked at me and said, have you been sick? And that cemented the realization that there was no way I could continue to do this. Wow. Um, and that that was that was when I quit. Basically, didn't, wow. didn't give any, any talks after that. And now it's one thing to quit and then go on and just be a psychiatrist. But you quit and something was in there where you said, I'm going to start a, a medical public, a psychiatric publication company that is going to go the, the, the very hard road and not accept any industry funding, which is I can't say entirely unprecedented, but but virtually so. Yeah, I mean, and you have to understand that at that point in the early 2000s, um, we as a profession were absolutely pummeled by um, pharmaceutically funded journals and supplements, um, which is uh, maybe less prominent now because so much education is via internet and video, TikTok, YouTube, whatever. Uh, but at that point, it was paper journals. And along with the journals, there were supplements. 
And I remember like Journal of Clinical Psychiatry was making a lot of money off of these supplements. They, they published 12 issues a year, their regular journal, but some, some years they published 20, up to 20 uh, issues of their supplements. And each supplement was actually completely funded by a different pharmaceutical company to push a certain marketing message. So this is the kind of stuff that we were getting. And I realized that until there was some alternative option that was non-pharmaceutically funded for the, the profession, we were not going to be able to really learn the, the, the actual information, uh, which is why I, so basically w within about six months, I think after I quit um, why, speaking for Wyatt, I started the Carlisle Psychiatry Report. Let me ask, what do you, do you have comments about the landscape of publishing now for psychiatry, academic psychiatry? So now you have um, a lot of options that are much more comprehensive and that are less clearly pharmaceutical, pharmaceutically influenced. And so a couple of uh, really my probably my favorite publication is an online only publication that I'm sure you guys use all the time up to date or maybe, maybe you do a lot of uh, a lot of medical schools purchase it and uh, allow their faculty and students to use it for free. So uh, now up to date is not funded uh, directly by the pharmaceutical industry or really even indirectly, but they do hire writers and editors who are funded in various ways uh, by drug sure. companies. I guess it's hard to avoid that, right? Uh, it is kind of hard to avoid that. I mean, we've chosen uh, over these last you know, 20 years, it's been 20 years now uh, since we've been in, in business, we've chosen to not only not get paid by drug companies, but to not hire any writers or experts who have really any any connection at all with, with pharmaceutical industry. But that's, that's for massive. Yeah, you've been remarkably successful, um, kind of surprisingly so. Um, I, in terms of what you said with the supplements, I receive most of like the top psych journals um, and I am often sometimes confused and sometimes not so confused. So a confusing supplement might be like, you know, it comes in this kind of like newspaper cellophane thing and you open it and you get your journal. And then there is like this other journal looks like a medical journal that appears to be entirely about how great cannabis is um, that, you know, then you turn to the last page or somewhere in it, it said that it was funded by the cannabis industry. And, but that took me a while to figure out. And I, you know, as more, I've, as I've gotten a farther into training and kind of realized more of these things, those have been less confusing, but one that wasn't confusing at all is like, I think several journals recently have come with a huge thing that you have to like peel off before you can even open the journal that says in Vega half year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think everyone's seen that. And, you know, to the point where now everyone knows that name and I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's, and that's, that's some of that is purely advertising. Uh, I think what, what was bothering me um, sort of more back in the day was that it wasn't clearly advertising. So the supplements looked like the regular journals um, and they would be focusing on, you know, bipolar depression or, or cardiovascular side effects in patients with psychiatric disorders. And then they would lead you down a garden path via the cases that were in the journals, uh, via the articles that they published. Uh, they would lead you down a path toward 
one particular medication. And that medication, lo and behold, was always the medication that um, was uh, funding that particular supplement. So I, I used to have fun just trying to open it up and not look at who who was sponsoring it and try, just trying to guess based purely on, on the case reports. And usually I was, well, always I was able to do that. Anybody would have been. So we have an understanding of what inspired the work that has um, been so predominant in your career. And we understand, we have an understanding of how difficult that is, that ch- taking on that challenge is. What has been the response that you've received from the medical field, from the media, from the pharmaceutical companies? Uh, I mean, it, it really has been surprisingly positive overall. I mean, I'd say that, um, you know, I started the publication, like the first issue was in 2003, and um, uh, I have gotten much more um, positive publicity than I would have ever imagined. And um, one thing that really surprised me was that mainstream uh, newspapers were starting to want to interview me. Uh, and it, it was odd because this was a newsletter for psychiatrists, not for mainstream media at all. Uh, but um, I would have journalists who were trying to do their research on various medications would come across it. And uh, one of them asked me to write an op-ed for the New York Times. So I ended up writing a couple of op-eds about pharmaceutical um, about the pharmaceutical industry uh, for the New York Times. And then in 2007, I think you mentioned the uh, Dr. Drug Rep article, which was essentially me telling the story in more detail than I, that I just told you uh, about my experience uh, speaking for Wyatt. And that, that was published. And it was when, you know, it was cer- certainly flattering. It's always flattering to get published in a, you know, a, a publication like the New York Times. But I, I didn't really have a sense that it would be that popular necessarily. And I re- remember when it was first published, they, on, on a Thursday night, it would be dropped online. And I began to get these emails and I started to get these emails one one a minute and then two a minute. And then eventually this just barrage of emails and it became the third, there became the most emailed article in the entire newspaper wow. for three, three or four days running. Wow. And then I, and so that sort of hit with the splash. And then I, I don't know whether, you know, it's hard to know whether any particular publication or article or any kind of effort is something that has real influence in in politics or in regulations. Um, but, it, you know, I, I think my story was part of it. There were a lot of other people interested in this topic. And um, uh, eventually in 2010, as part of the Affordable Care Act, the, um, the Sunshine Act, Physician Payment Sunshine Act was passed, which created a a website called the Open Payments website, and I think that that website requires all drug companies to publish all of their um, transfers of value, any any payments that they make to doctors, on a publicly available website. So that has really led to more transparency, and I think less less of a tendency for doctors to feel that it's okay to take drug company money purely for mm-hmm. the purposes of doing marketing. Yeah, I think it has had an effect when I speak 
casually with my colleagues, at least when I was in residency, everyone was really, really nervous about going to any uh, drug lunches. And they would always talk about that Sunshine Act. Mm-hmm. And I ask, what do you see as the future of this mission? Or for you, do you have any projects down the line that you're seeing as goals that you have for for um, your work or Carlette Publishing? I mean, for Carlette Publishing, we're really interested in getting just a lot more education out there, especially uh, with regard to substance use disorder, because there there's a uh, a um, there's a, a trend where um, psychiatrists and primary care doctors don't feel comfortable treating substance right. use disorder. You know, only about 10% of those with alcohol use disorder are, are getting medically assisted treatments. So, you know, just kind of trying to get out there, provide education to primary care doctors and to psychiatrists to help them learn what they need to learn. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we spoke to Dr. Danny Carlat of the Carlat Report. Thank you to co-host Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi and production assistant Yasmin Dakama. Thank you, Dr. Carlat, for joining us. Uh, check out the Carlat Report, the blog, the podcast, and any of Carlat's wealth of learning materials. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at get psyched on KUCR at gmail.com. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and post a review. You can listen to extended versions of our show or past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, Al Atkins. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Yes. Um, Anyone else have any questions? I I do have a question. I just want to see if if the pharmaceutical industry's impact on psychiatry, if you feel that also impacted patient populations too, and what they might seek from a psychiatrist. I mean, the way that it has affected patients is by encouraging doctors to prescribe certain medications, uh, perhaps more than they otherwise would. Okay. Uh, and, you know, when those meds have bad side effects, you know, like effects are causing hypertension or like opioids uh, causing opiate use disorder and overdose, then that has a negative effect.